1: With me today is Lucinda E. Clark. She has lived in various parts of the world from Dublin to Kenya to South Africa and now is residing in Spain. Lucinda has authored four books with a fifth one on the way. Her books include Walking Over Eggshells. And Very intriguing title. This book was written to raise awareness of personality disorders. She has worked as a writer in a variety of formats including documentaries, advertisements, training videos, radio and TV script, newspaper and magazine articles. As a director and producer for television, she founded her own video production company and she has received over 20 awards specializing in the fields of education, documentaries, municipal and government. Welcome, Lucinda.
2: Thank you, Carol. It's great to be on the show and thank you very much for inviting me.
1: Oh, you are most welcome. I'm, there are so many things that we're going to be able to talk about today and i uh, I'm I'm excited. Let's start with something that's very near and dear to my own heart, and that is animals. You mentioned in your bio to me that you have bred dozens of animals. I'm a dog rescuer, so this intrigues me. So tell me about that.
2: Well, we're talking about very small animals here. What happened, I was teaching in a primary school, and it was my turn to take the class guinea pig home for the holidays well while he was staying with me it it died. Now it's a little tricky when you go back as the teacher to say sorry kids I've been looking after the guinea pig um, and it's dead so I rushed out to buy a guinea pig to replace it hoping nobody would notice now at first I tried to get one the same colour and that didn't work and I thought any old guinea pig will do and I had such a problem finding one that when I did I got two uh, they happen to be opposite sexes, of course, and I started breeding them. I thought if there's a, a shortage, there might be a market for them. <laughs> so I started breeding guinea pigs, and then that transferred uh, to gerbils, and Dutch rabbits, and what was the fourth thing? Gerbils, guinea pigs, rabbits, and hamsters. Right. Okay. So I had all these animals. I had about 108 at one time. What? Yes. In oh different my goodness. Ages took hours to clean them out. I was still teaching full time. <laughs> and when we moved from the south of England up to Scotland, because we were going to Croft, I had one Cairn Terrier. So I thought, well, I'll breed those as well. Why not? So I bought more. I think I had eight dogs altogether. And we had a couple of cats, as most households do. So we pulled all of them into this huge moving van and drove them 600 kilometres north to Scotland.
1: Oh, my goodness. And what was the purpose of this again?
2: Well, making money, really. I think. <laughs> <laughs> By that time, I, I was beginning to get uh, the first inkling that my husband, bless him, and I love him to bits, was still in contact. But he is a Walter Mitty clone, and he wasn't that reliable when it came to job keeping or should I say job holding. So I thought any extra cash I can get because I was by the time we moved up to Scotland, I was pregnant. So I thought there's no way that I can continue teaching indefinitely now. So I thought this would be another form of income. And? Well, <laughs> yes, it's, something always seemed to go wrong. Uh, we got a case of su- pseudo tuberculosis. And the lot were wiped out in about four weeks. Mm. Two of the dogs managed to get out of the kennels and went and killed some chickens on the nearby farm. So we had to have them put down. The only thing that bred successfully was myself and the cats under the sink.
1: (laughs) Were you under the sink or just the cats?
2: Just the cats. I managed to stay. (laughs) Well, mind you, I had to crawl under the sink a lot to see to them. But... uh, (laughs) So I, I did bring, breed some canned for a while and I did sell them quite successfully. And the ones that were left, uh, I did manage to sell before we then moved to Africa.
1: Very interesting. So what took you to Africa?
2: Well, Walter Mitty got a job. Um, it was in, we thought we were going to Tanzania. And when we went down to the offices to uh, the discuss where we were going and when when the flight was going to be they merrily turned around and said well actually your wife isn't going to Tanzania you are you're going uh, she's going to Nairobi and I thought where the heck is Nairobi I mean my geography of Africa in those days was like zilch so luckily they had a world map on the Walls, so I sort of inched over and had a look and I thought, well, it's next door. And then I realized that I was actually going to be in an African country on my own. And the furthest I'd ever traveled was just across the channel to France.
1: My goodness. And did you, how did, how long were you there?
2: In Kenya, I suppose about eight months. But of course, I was there on my own for at least the first four of those months.
1: And did you manage that okay?
2: Well, I had to. Um, I wouldn't go for Mother of the Year award any time soon, because I had—I think she must have been about between five and seven weeks old. I can't remember exactly. Um, and I'm in a bungalow, 25 kilometers outside Nairobi. I have virtually no money. I have no transport. I have no electricity. I've got no food in the house. I do have a servant, which is great, isn't it? Uh, It's just what you need when you've got nothing else and you don't have any money to pay her either. Um, And then the baby got sick. Mm. So I was quite desperate, actually, at the time. And I hitched... Well, no, I didn't. I, I tell a lie. I took a bus into Nairobi. Now, this was a bus for locals... And I don't suppose they'd ever seen a white person on a bus like that before.
1: When was this? What what, uh, decade?
2: 1974.
1: Okay, okay.
2: And I took a bus into Nairobi and I staked out the hotel where the guy from the company was staying only to hear that he was away on safari. But by that time, I thought, there's no going back. I just have to sit here till he comes back. He did return that evening and I managed to get some cash out of him. And the next day, I got uh, took the baby to the clinic. So that was one hurdle over. Um, but it was it was a bit hairy, really, when I oh, looked back it. Oh, of course it.
1: it is. Absolutely. And... It's the unknown, too, that you had to deal with,
2: right? Well, I was totally... I mean, yes, yes, it was the unknown. I mean, the moment I got down off the plane in Nairobi, the first thing I saw was was a soldier at the bottom of the steps Mm -hmm. holding some sort of gun. I didn't know what kind of gun it was, but it looked big and it looked large and it looked very, very dangerous. So I sort of took a deep breath and thought, well, has civil war broken out? But that was quite normal there for people mm-hmm. to walk around singing these, mm-hmm. I presume they were AK-47s around, like you and I carry a handbag down the street.
1: <laughs> I totally relate with that because I was there in 72, same situation. So <laughs> <laughs> I understand. And unless you've experienced it, it really is difficult to describe because there is a certain element of fear that you, yes. it's very unfamiliar type of fear. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh anything else you want to share about your about your uh, uh travels?
2: Well, we moved from Kenya to for five and a half years in Libya and we were in Benghazi. That was a really exciting time of life. Uh luckily I I wasn't on my own that time. But we eventually that's when I started my radio career. I'd always wanted to write, but um the thought of going on radio, I mean, when I was in school, they used to say, do you want to be a nurse's secretary or a teacher? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was bleating, but I want to write, I want to write. And they said, don't be so silly, you've got to get a proper job. But getting into radio there was an absolute dream. Um, I really, really loved it. It was great fun. Um, so Libya, yes, we had quite a few exciting things happen to us in Libya. I uh, saw public hanging, got caught in tear gas riots. Uh What else? Had a pet rabbit in the house. That isn't quite as exciting, but it was interesting. (laughs) And I was teaching there. Um, What
1: were you teaching?
2: Children, <laughs> I would say that. That's, that's, that's
1: a bit good. Yeah, me. I appreciate you clarifying
2: <clears throat> that. They, they were, they were at the time, they were kindergarten children then. Um, I had trained as, I mean, I'd been a good girl and done as I was told and went, I thought teaching was the best of three very bad options. Um, and I did enjoy my years teaching. I think all in total, I must have taught for about 17 years. But I've taught them from sort of kindergarten right through to uh, lecturing and tech, uh, technical college. So, as I say, in Benghazi, I was, I was teaching the little ones, but by then I was had the second baby, so I and I had two children. So it did fit in very well, hours-wise and everything.
1: Well, that in itself sounds quite a feat, you know, considering um, what you had to accomplish by yourself and you're teaching in a foreign country, etc. So my, I applaud you. My hat is off to you. So what actually did motivate you to become a writer? Like you said, you've always wanted to be. What, what pushed you, I guess, to, uh, to pursue
2: that? I, I was an only child of um, a widowed mother who had a personality disorder. And I spent most of my childhood miles away from my home in my head. Uh, as much as time that I could get on my own, I would be soaring in all kinds of different places, different lands, different situations, and I wanted to put them on paper. I did have some kind of example in my grandfather who used to run, run a newspaper in China. So whether it was in the blood or not, I have got no idea. But I wanted to write and I'm told I taught myself to read. I think that's a bit ridiculous, but I'm told I did. And I remember reading Ina Blyton Under the Blankets when I was little, thinking, I could do this. This doesn't seem so terribly hard. Um, so I think it's always been there. Okay.
1: And now let's talk about your book, and personality disorders. This is what I want to zero in on because I think this Mm -hmm. is what our listeners are going to be very interested in hearing about. So, however you want to, if you want to start with talking about personality disorders that you deal with in the book or talk about your book or however you would like to to do that, just feel free.
2: Okay. Well, I... How can I'm just wondering where to start? I tell you what let me just give you an idea of what personality disorders are. They are because i under- i mean everybody knows what sexual um abuse is all about I mean especially with the big name people that have been found right. Who, you know, take too much interest in choir boys or groupies at rock concerts and uh-huh. all this kind of thing. And everybody jumps up and down and screams and says, Oh, this is terrible, this is awful. I have been suffering my whole life. And to some extent, you know, emotional abuse, Carol, is so much worse. Yes. It doesn't stop when you get to twenty one and say, Hang on a minute, I don't have to keep this a secret anymore. I'm going to tell the police or I can keep my distance physically from you because uh you can't hurt me anymore. But with emotional abuse, it's insidious, it's invisible, and it can be almost silent. And I know it's been on and off the American disorder list for, I don't know, a couple of times. But basically, there are several of them. But my mother suffered from a narcissistic personality disorder. And I've got in front of me here some of the things that are manifest in this particular syndrome. They have an exaggerated self a sense of self-importance, they expect to be recognised as superior even without any achievements at all, exaggerating any achievements or t- and talents they may or may not have, being preoccupied with fantasies about success, power, brilliance, beauty or the perfect maid, believing that they are superior, can only be understood by or associated with equally su- special people, they require constant attention, have a sense of entitlement, expect special favors and compliance from everybody they meet. They take advantage of others to get their own way or get something that they want. They have an inability or unwillingness to recognize the needs and feelings of others. They are envious of other people, but they also think that other people envy them and behaving in an arrogant and haughty manner. Now, I'm not saying everybody with the pres- that particular personality mm-hmm. disorder has all of those symptoms all of the time, but that... I think you probably can hear where the tendencies are coming from.
1: Yes, yes. And
2: no, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Go on.
1: I was just gonna, No, you finish. I was going to ask you, um, and you can continue and then share this as well, how that manifested into your own life.
2: Yes. Well, my mother, there are, there are obviously sort of like subcategories, but my mother, first of all, was unkind to me verbally. She would tell me I was no good, she would tell me that I would never achieve anything, she would criticize me morning, noon and night. If I upset her in any way, we would have silence for maybe up to two or three weeks at a time. Uh, she never told me she loved me, she never hugged me, she was always very stiff and formal with me. Um. So basically, when I, as I was growing up, I had no confidence in myself, no confidence in my abilities. Uh, I had very, very low self-esteem. I didn't feel I could achieve anything. And I was given the impression, like so many children like me in a situation like that, suffer from is that they can't achieve anything unless they have their parent, the mother, father, whatever, whoever has the, the disorder, unless you have their approval. And you know what it's like when you've just learnt to dive and you're standing on the edge of the swimming pool and you say, wait, wait, look at me, look at me, I'm going to, you know, so you, they want the attention, they want the approbation. And I've come to realize that even if you're 60, 70, you still want your parents' approbation. It's very important to you. You want them to feel that you have succeeded. You want them to be proud of you. And if they never give you any encouragement, then it is quite devastating on personality development. Did
1: that put you in any kind of depression?
2: Well, I tried to commit suicide when I was about 14, Um, but I got scared. My mother just laughed hysterically and said, I don't believe you're making it up. It's all your imagination. Uh, But I did hear her on the phone to the doctor and I heard her repeat his words, take lots of salt water and make her throw up. And I did. I'd taken about I don't know, 20 paracetamol, I think, or whatever was around in those days. And I did take the salt water and I did make myself throw up. And whether she believes that to this day that I'd taken them in the first place, I've got no idea. Really? Mm. And
1: how did that affect you?
2: I was just so unhappy all of the time. I didn't really know what it was like to be happy. You know, I'd have very brief moments, but I'm a terrible worrier at the best of times. And some people can switch off moods. They can walk out the front door and put everything behind them and go out and enjoy themselves. I was never able to do that. It was always at the back of my mind, I've got to go home. I've got to go, but you know, I'm going to be told off if I'm late. Or she didn't want me to go out in the first place. That kind of thing. So I found it very hard to relax. So I had very few friendships. Very few friends. Um, And... My first thought was I've got to escape this at some point. But being sort of, well, I can't think of the right word. When you get to, when you get to my age, Carol, you lose words. They, <laughs> they disappear out of the vocabulary. Um, I had enough common sense, I think, or intelligence or whatever, you, survival instincts, whatever you want to call it, to think if I'm going to escape, I've got to do it being able to support myself, I've got to be able to do it so that I don't end up sleeping on the streets or turning into drugs or prostitution or something like that. I've got to do it the right way and the right way was getting an education so that I would have a um, qualification to do a respectable sort of job. And so I thought, right, well, when I d- decided of the three options that I would go for teaching, I then filled in forms and because we did a lot of these at school I applied to colleges a long way from home and it worked.
1: Hmm. Smart.
2: Uh, Yes well of course I had to go home on the holidays (laughs) but at least it kept me out of the house for periods at a time. In fact there had been one time in my um Senior school years when my mother was getting a little desperate because I don't know whether I'm uh, what they might call a bloody minded child. I don't know, but I really did feel that life was unfair, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Does that make sense to you? Mm. You could see a few other kids with their parents and they'd laugh and joke and be friendly, but I. I because when you grow up something like this, you think it's sort of like normal to have to worship your your parent and do everything they tell you to do and do all the housework and feed her meals and take her breakfast in bed every morning um, and get told off if I didn't do it absolutely perfectly all the time. Um, and you sort of think it's the normal and everybody else is doing it the course. same way. And because I had so few friends, because I wasn't allowed out, to play with the local children, um, because I'd been sent to private school and I was too good to do that attitude, Uh, I didn't really have many comparisons. So when I first went to college, I mean, I had big problems. Oh, I'm leapfrogging here. I was telling you about um, in my time in school, I think my mother really felt that she was losing control. And I didn't know this until two years ago. Right. And I'm in my mid 60s now that my mother's best friend who had taken me in one day when uh, my mother had locked me out late one night, pouring with rain, freezing cold. December in UK. Not much fun. And I couldn't. There was no porch even to shelter in. She wouldn't let me back in the house. I'd stormed out because I knew I was going to do or say something that I would bitterly regret. Mm. later. She just driven me to the edge and her best friend. Ah, took me in, gave me coffee, gave me a hug. In those days, gave me a cigarette too. And when I finally went back home, when my mother found out, she didn't speak to her best friend for five years. My goodness. In that interim time, her best friend had written to my mother's father, my grandfather. Um, who lived up in London, to say that she felt that this abuse had really gone too far. And I think social services got involved, and they said I had to be removed from my mother, and I was sent down to live with cousins. Now, for five glorious months, I had a wonderful time with them, thoroughly enjoyed it. But then I think mother decided that, you know, she wasn't getting the house cleaned and the hedge cut and the lawn mowed, and she came down and grabbed me back. I didn't know any of this. I mean, I knew I'd been... Mm-hmm. to obviously. But I didn't know anything about the social service side, say, until a couple of years ago, and it all came to light when my mother's friend died, and my best friend, who I was still very friendly with, her daughter, was going through her um, effects.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: It's just amazing. Yeah. It is. How that came to light. Yes. And how did that affect you? I was shocked. Well, you see, I didn't discover until... About, now hang on, my mother's been dead for about three years. I didn't discover till about two and a half years ago that she had a personality disorder. And it came about, about quite by chance. The same friend, my mother's best friend daughter, has a flat not very far away from us in Spain and comes out a few times a year. And she'd been listening to another radio station and they had been talking about personality disorders. And she phoned me and she said, that is what your mother had. Because, I mean, she'd seen a lot of my mother as we were growing up. Mm -hmm. And when I got down, we had a sort of very informal counseling type group that I used to go to once a week here. Um, And as I walked through the door, the the counselor turned to me and said, I've been thinking about your story over the last few weeks, and I think your mother had a narcissistic personality disorder. So twice in the matter of 10 minutes, after 60 odd years, to be told by two people that that's what it was, was just amazing
1: and what a revelation for you.
2: It was. And then I went through, I think, probably the, the usual stages of, of, you know, I think there are five, seven steps after, you've, after a bereavement. Yes. You know, the anger. Yes. Then the, the sort of why me and the denial. Um, I can't remember the stages in the order because you don't right. follow them. In right. The, right. But even today, there are times I know I've survived. I know I've had a really incredible life. and That sounds awfully big-headed. I don't mean it that way. But despite all that, I have done and gone places and done things that I would never have ever thought I could do when I was a child or a teenager or even when I was in college. It, they've all sort of happened to me. <laughs> I can't yeah. say I've gone out for them. Um, but then to discover that all this, it was just... Uh, even even now occasionally I just get quite upset if you see I well I shouldn't say this you'll probably have to cut it out of the interview Carol but I actually think that daughters of personality uh, people who or don't, who don't have right personalities actually sue Disney and the Hallmark film company for showing lovely films about happy families <laughs> on the television all the time everybody behaves the right way, because our families didn't, and seeing something like that makes you realize what you could have missed, you know, what you could have had.
1: Well, it's fiction.
2: (laughs) It is, yes, absolute fiction.
1: (laughs) And the other thing, as you were talking, what I was thinking is, although you have endured what you had to endure, it made you who you were. Yes. And this is something that I know you are fully aware of. And many of the people that I interview are acutely aware of that. And that is that that actually helps you correct me if or agree or disagree with me. It helps you to understand that all the good that you have done all the good in your life, all everything that you have accomplished, was driven many times by the negatives that happened to you. Is that what happened in your case?
2: Yes, I think, probably a hundred percent, Carol. Now, at the back of my book, that's Walking Over Eggshells one, I do say that I have a lot to thank my mother for. I have to thank her for getting me a good private school education. Uh, I won't thank her for the ballet lessons. I'd rather forget them. <laughs> because <But laughs> I couldn't go riding. That's what I wanted to do. Okay. But I wasn't allowed to Um The elocution lessons, maybe. Uh, all that standing up in the town hall, reciting ghastly poems about flowers and things. Um, she did teach me to dress nicely. She did teach me good manners and how to behave. But, you know, the most important thing to me is how to read between the, the lines or the words. She taught me to watch people's back. I mean, she didn't sit down and teach me this, you understand. But it was this your
1: observation.
2: From her, yes, yes. from my observations. How to watch people's eyes, because I was always waiting from the, for the next explosion from her. Mm. So I learned to read her like a book. Mm-hmm. Um, how to read body language, how to read the tone of voice, how to hear what wasn't being said. And when I finally went into radio, television, and all the rest of it, and did lots of interviews with people, I could guess that if they said they wanted to make this film because they wanted to do this, that, and the other, I would think, no, you don't. You actually (laughs) want me to feature you. Mm. So I'm thinking, right, client, signs the check, very important, (laughs) slobber over him morning, noon, and night. I would then feature him in every other scene, you know, and he would be thrilled, and I would get away with the script. Oh, that's very funny. Three or four you know, drafts yes. and away we go and he would be thrilled with it because I knew. Now, if I had another client and he really wanted to impress head office but he didn't want to appear in it and he would give me information about his company then I would obviously gear the script slightly differently um, and then I would get other people saying that because of the good management they had this is how they were managing to produce and getting great returns and profits Um because the, the the client, if you like, was shy, retiring, didn't want to be on camera. Do you hear where I'm coming yes, from with yes. this? Yes. Yes. I was able to. My, I have been accused of being manipulative, but I don't think it's in a nasty way. I just think it's using tips and tricks that I picked up from growing to up to achieve
1: a final goal.
2: Yes, and one that made everybody happy. So there was no uh-huh. nastiness involved in this. Um, they were they had programs they were happy with. The bank manager was happy with. When well, with be sometimes when I went to the bank, um, and you know, they achieved the the videos achieved their aims and objectives.
1: Now let, <clears throat> let's back up a little bit with mm-hmm. uh, your book again. You said mm-hmm. that you are dealing with personality disorders, plural. So yeah. first of all, what do you deal with in the book, and do you give tips? Do you give coping skills? What is it, a self-help book? Like, let's talk about the book.
2: No, it's not a self-help book really in any shape or form. I wrote it originally um, to, oh, there's two reasons I wrote it. First of all, I wanted to write down the story of my life because I I have been... I'm not famous. Um, I know people in the industry in South Africa know me, but that's hardly famous. It's not like being a worldwide icon or anything. Um, But I wanted to write down what I had done, where I had been, the dreadful situations and the brilliant situations I got myself involved in, uh, before I forgot it all. Because already, as I said earlier, I'm forgetting the odd words and vocabulary and so on. Um, But I also wanted to... And this is... I wrote it before... I wrote it about 10 years ago. I wrote it down as a story of my life, but I wanted to sort my feelings and thoughts out about my upbringing. I only finished it after I discovered the personality disorder bit. And when I put that all together, and I'd been on a couple of forums and websites about personality disorders, it dawned on me that if I could help anybody out there, and show them what life had been like with my mother. They might think, wow, my mother stroke father is like that. Mm. Now I know. And it's not me. I'm not to blame. Yes. It's a yes. situation I'm in. Now... Having gone that far, I thought to myself, well, I have put lots about living in Kenya and Libya and Botswana and Swaziland and South Africa and various parts of the United Kingdom in there as well. I'm going to try and make this a palatable, easy to read book with as much humor in as I can um, with the thread of my mother running through the background. Mm -hmm. So it's not a self-help book, but... I got so used to making programs and writing radio scripts in a story form that would hopefully encourage, and a lot of them were for black populations who hadn't had a lot of education, that they should wash their hands or they should prepare food in this particular way or they should rehydrate their babies or whatever. Try and put it in a story way. so. If I'm explaining this very well, I try to wrap it all up in a fun book to read.
1: So you it's basically a story? Is that what you're saying then? Or Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay.
2: And I think to some extent I have achieved that objective because I have had an amazing number of emails back from people saying, do you know, I now understand how my mum behaved or I now understand why nobody in the family could get on with auntie Violet. Or I know why Uncle Fred fell out with everybody else. And I think it has struck a chord with a lot of people. Because apparently, I don't know if you believe statistics or not, but up to 9% of the population have one of the personality disorders to a greater or lesser extent.
1: That doesn't surprise me. So basically you are bringing awareness. In yes, a in, it, an, in a fun way, in a true story, um, mm-hmm. including everything that you had just talked about. So it's it, that that's huge because, like you said, when people see that and they can relate to it, mm-hmm. it it is a strength for them.
2: Well, a couple of, well, one person said to me, "It's the funniest book she'd read in years." Really? And I thought, really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I was I hoped it was. Had some humorous <laughs> stories in it, um, but I hadn't written. What does she public. normally read? You wonder, right? Eh? <laughs> I didn't dare ask her. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I have. I think a lot of people have seen beneath the onion layers and seen where I was coming from. But at the same time, they may have sat down and read it in one or two sittings, because. We do rush from country to country and you never know quite what's going to happen with Walter Mitty Husband because that was abuse of a different kind. I mean, when you come out of an abusive situation, boy, are you just standing there like an Aunt Sally at a country fair waiting for other people to take full advantage of you.
1: Absolutely. So you went from, as they say, the frying pan to the fire.
2: Yes, except he laced it with nicer words. He slobbered over me a lot, um, told me he loved me, told me I was great, etc., etc. But I think part of the abuse in his case was that he used me mainly financially. He didn't keep a job longer than 18 months. Um, He did have a fierce temper that I had to be careful about. Um, But while I was working away... Uh, at one job after another, and usually two at a time, he would be out there merrily spending it all or, or losing a job, and we'd have to use my money to keep going in the interim till he found something better. It
1: sounds like you have lived in a lot of fear in your life, various forms you had fear of your mother, you had fear yeah. of, of failure, you had fear of um survival mm-hmm. uh, yes so. How did you cope with all that? Like, what was the driving force behind you? You obviously did not have support of family. Nope. Um, you you had limited number of friends. Mm-hmm. What was the thing, if anything in particular, that you can think on, other than your, your true tenacity, that kept you going and overcoming the fears? You know,
2: I haven't really sat down and asked myself that question. I think I have good survival instincts um, maybe I'm just sort of plain this isn't going to get me down I'm going to make a plan and once I'd made a plan for worst case scenario, I felt I could cope but I was coping many occasions on a day to day basis if I get through this day, then tomorrow's another day and something may well come up in the meantime so I and To be quite honest, I was so incredibly busy most of the time, generally with two jobs, bringing up two small children, not living, as you say, living without support of any form. I I was generally working, what, 18-hour days, falling into bed at night and crashing out. I didn't have time to sit Mm -hmm. and feel sorry for myself or even consider it. I just kept going.
1: Again, like you said, your survival instincts.
2: And a sense of humor, I think. I've always had a rather weird, maybe a weird, I don't know, sense of humor. And it's funny, you know, uh, You know, Robin Williams died not so very long ago. And everybody said that, in fact, he was quite a sad person in his personal yes, life. yes. And then I read a couple of articles that said that a lot of other comedians, if you like, had also had very sad lives like um, Peter Sellers. You know that Robin Williams died recently, and people actually said that he was a very sad person in in his life. And Peter Sellers, too, a famous comedian, also had a very unhappy life. And I understand that humour is like a coping mechanism if you are having a tough time in your personal life. And, that made me wonder. I thought, well, maybe that's quite a normal reaction on my part. That I, I've always loved to make people laugh. And most of, I mean, my other two biographies are basically comedies.
1: Also, I, I've heard that clowns are very often extremely sad. And it's an outward yes. physical manifestation mm-hmm. of that by being funny, not, not just... Um, um, you know a sense of humor, but they've yes. taken it like one step further so no that is that is quite normal and that in itself is a coping mechanism because otherwise you would be having pity parties all over the place and you would be living in a state of of depression and you to help yourself get out of that depression you find things to laugh about it's a healing.
2: Yes, I think it is. And the other thing is, if if everybody has told you in your life that you're a total waste of space, an oxygen thief, and you're really taking up too much space on the planet, and you do, and I have forced myself, well, to stand up in front of a crowd of people and and crack a few jokes, and they laugh, it is just such an amazing feeling Mm. that you have made other people happy and that they have related back to you.
1: And it builds your confidence.
2: It does, yes.
1: And usually people in those kind of situations have very, very, like you as well, very low self-esteem and low confidence issues. So what is, go ahead, was you going to say something? I was
2: going to say I've had more self-confidence build up in the last two years with the response to the books that I have written and self-published than I have ever had in the whole of my previous 60-odd years. Really? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Now, what's the next one? Are you doing another one?
2: Yes. Um, I wrote The Walking of Eggshells First, The Story of My Mother, and I hadn't really thought about writing any more books because I, in theory, had come to Spain to retire. But I did start finding I was getting a bit bored. So I have this – it's part of the survival thing, or not, Carol, because I will push myself out of my comfort zone to have a new experience to keep learning, to keep active. My brain is always looking for things to do. So I taught myself how to do PowerPoint presentations and I started giving lectures to the history groups around here um, about various historical subjects. And having done that, I then thought, right, well, I've done quite a few of those now. And then I thought about writing a novel. I thought, I wonder if I can do a novel. I've been a, a professional writer for thirty five years or whatever mm. it was. I don't don't count. But <laughs> so um I wonder if I can actually write a novel where a client isn't saying, This is what you've got to put in it, this is how long it's got to be, this is how it's going to begin and end and I sat down and wrote one and it did quite well. And I thought, Wow, okay. Well let's before <laughs> I forget again, let me write down all stuff that happened in my writing career and my radio and television career. Um just so that I can sit in my rocking chair in the old age home and read them through and think, well, yes, that's who I am, you know, to sort of stave off the the total dementia. Um, And then a lot of people sort of said, well, are you going to write more on your novel? And I thought, well, why not? So, yes, I've written another sequel to to it. Wonderful.
1: Wonderful. And And is, is this what's going to be the next one then as well?
2: Yes, the first one was Amy. She was she was my novel. Um and the next one is Amy, a child of Africa, hoping to publish in September. Okay. I'm editing at the moment.
1: And then the next
2: one? The next one I have in mind, I don't know. I might I'm thinking about a comedy, a political comedy, but I won't say more than that at the moment.
1: Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> So, what would you give as a call to action today for our listeners?
2: I would think that if you're in a situation, a family situation, where it is really uncomfortable, that's making you unhappy, I would, if it was me, starting again, I would go on the internet and I would go through various personality disorders, dysfunctional type stuff, and try and take a a (coughs) earmark what somebody um might be suffering from whether it's your father your mother your grandparents who are living with you or your your own children i suppose and try and get a fix on that if it does come down and i only know i know most obviously about narcissism narcissistic personality disorder because that was so close to me Mm -hmm. there actually carol is no other solution if you like than going very low Or no contact. And that can be absolutely heartbreaking. But there comes a time if you feel that it's destroying you and your psyche. Where you have to protect yourself and put yourself first. Which is really difficult because your whole life, if you've had a narcissistic parent or if you have a narcissistic partner in life, has been, you must see to my needs first, yours are unimportant, they don't matter, they don't exist. You are here to serve me. But I think there comes a time, and I think my time when I did break from my first husband was when I was in my 40s and I thought, I have no life insurance. He has no life insurance. We have no pension plan. We have no certainty that he will stay in any job any longer than he ever has done. And there is a limit to how long I can keep working. Of course, I didn't know that then that I'd only be pretended to retire when I did retire, because I'm now spending hours at my computer. But I won't say that uh-huh. too loudly, because my husband will hear. <laughs> he has noticed. He's not too thrilled. But, still. <laughs> um, but there comes a time when you feel or you realize that you have to protect yourself. And that's when you have to possibly walk away. And that's the hardest, hardest thing to do.
1: I can't imagine. No. <clears throat> Absolutely, that would be, like you said, walk away. It has to be permanent.
2: Pretty much. And the guilt is enormous. Absolutely horrendous.
1: Good point. So how do you deal with that?
2: Well, look, in my case, I didn't have to as far as my mother was concerned because I was the good, dutiful, loving, caring daughter right up to the very end. I was with her when she died. I was the only one who was with her when she died. Mm. And I sat with her and I travelled on our fixed income pension over several times to see her when she was on her own, when I was obviously not in Africa anymore. It was much cheaper and easier from Spain to go and visit her. Um, and I, when she was in the care home, I also went over several times to visit her. And it was during that time I discovered that she had cut me out of her will completely. Wow. And I was still, sp- I still spent the money, and my wonderful husband was accommodating enough to say, "No, I understand. You, you have." To. I didn't really have to do the guilt with that, Carol, because I was the dutiful good daughter right up to the very end. Uh, We'd moved from Africa then up to Spain. So I was able to fly over and see her and visit her several times when she, you know, was getting pretty old. She was in her late 80s. And then again, I went and visited her in the care home. And I was the only one with her when she died. None of the other family were there. And I had gone to see her, and spent the money and my wonderful husband had been very accommodating. He understood my feelings that I needed or I wanted to be with her. Um, even though I knew I'd found out by that time that she cut me out of her will. And it was actually taking money out of our rather small fixed income capital for the future. Uh, I was hoping up to the very last that there would be this wonderful Hollywood boat. Hmm. I'm watching too many flipping films, you know that. <laughs> uh, I, should, I should stay away from the cinema and the TV. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I sat with her for three days. I slept on the floor next to her bed in the hospital. I only went away to have a quick wash and change. And I ate my meals next to her and I talked to her for three days. And she didn't say a thing. She squeezed my hand once. And really? I just hoped that that in my mind i decided that that was something but i did tell her i felt a bit mean telling her that i was still there even though i knew she'd cut me out of her will and that would have made such a difference to our lives because she left an awful lot of money um i was still there because i was her daughter and i was doing the right thing and i actually did love her and this is the silly thing you do love them carol You want their love, and the more they don't give it to you, the more you jump up and down and scream and say, here I am, here I am, love me, love me, I'm okay. Aren't I an okay person? Uh, But it didn't happen. So that did take the guilt away, I must admit. I did what I could up to the end. But I must confess now that I didn't go to the funeral. I couldn't face going and hearing what might or might not be said yes i'd i been with her when she died i knew that you know i had done what i could i didn't need to go and be the good daughter for everybody else's point of view yes yes i could live with myself because i felt that i'd done what i should do so anyway um, there's
1: a huge lesson in that right there You know, just well, what you just what you said, because many people are in that same scenario. There's a huge lesson right there that you mentioned in, in dealing with guilt. I mean, you did everything you could. There's no more reason to feel guilty. And you dealt with it in a way that many people are not able to, and they don't go to the funeral per se. And that brings a whole new uh, area of guilt in their lives. I think you... I applaud you again for doing that and how difficult that would have been. And sitting in that room and all the things that would have gone through your mind about your whole life, I mean, that's wonderful I, that you were able
2: to do that. Another big lesson I learned, <coughs> particularly from my ex as well, was that you're not responsible for other people's actions. Now, this is a huge lesson to learn. It's enormous. And when you finally take that on board... You don't have to behave in order to please other people, or should I say, have them thinking well of you. If you can live with yourself and be at peace with yourself, and I am at peace with myself now, I think that is a huge step forward. Now, all the things I've achieved, Okay, so I've met Prince Charles and I've interviewed Nelson Mandela and I've got all these flipping awards, which are now under the bed. That's really exciting. (laughs) Nobody can see them. I don't think anybody here knows I've got them since I moved to Spain. You know, I don't think I've even told anybody. Um, And you all that is is really inconsequential if you can be at peace and you can realize that you don't. Obviously, you have your self-respect, and I wouldn't invite people round if my house was filthy. Or should I say I would clean it before they came, put it that way. (laughs) But I think if you can do what you think is right without hurting anybody else, you do to some extent have to put yourself first and you have to protect yourself from falling apart and ending up with a nervous breakdown or living on Prozac 24-7 or... Not everybody can do it. Um, I was just very lucky in that the upbringing I had motivated me to survive. And I, if I'd had a really nice family, I probably married a nice boy who lived in the same town. I would have talked till I retired and I wouldn't have had three books of exciting adventures to write about.
1: As I, excuse me again, as I said earlier, it made you who you are. Yes. Yes. And that is a good thing. And you have also been able to recognize all those things in your life. And instead of feeling sorry for yourself, turn them into a positive. And that is your legacy.
2: I thought, hadn't thought about it quite that way. But yes, I mean, I, I remember once going to a counsellor and it was a friend of a friend and she said, look, I've got a counsellor. You must go and have a chat with him and he will sort of make you feel better. And we had this long chat for about two hours and I turned to him in the end and I said, you haven't actually pointed out to me anything that I don't know about myself. I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses. Mm. But the bottom line at the moment as to why I'm struggling, is that I'm desperately trying to hold everything together financially. Mm-hmm. And if you gave me a cheque for a hundred thousand rand right now, I could really put my life in order. You know, it was yes. that was what was keeping my, me going. And I think I'm very lucky because if you're a multi millionaire and you have a divorce. You don't have anything to take your mind off that. And like you mentioned earlier, pity parties. You could sit and drink yourself or drug yourself for hours on end with a pity party. And because many you do. Don't to get out there and spend your time, your energy, your thoughts, making a living of some one kind or another to put food on the table for your kids.
1: And that's your motivation.
2: Yes, absolutely. To get them launched with enough education so they could stand on their own two feet.
1: Right. Well, this has been an interesting and emotional experience. I thank you for the things that you have shared. I thank you. We look forward to your book and the humor. Uh, the <laughs> book, again, is Walking Over Eggshells as opposed to Walking on Eggshells, right? So that that. Yes, that I really absolutely. appreciate that title. Walking <laughs> Over Eggshells by Lucinda e clark mm-hmm. all your information and your con- your contact information your books etc will all be on the web page so we, nobody's going to lose that and they can certainly tap in to contact you and oh, yes. uh, connect you know connect with you in any form that they would like whether it be facebook or your website or whatever and definitely will be reading your book so i thank you again lucinda Um, Is there any final word you want to say? And if not, we will say goodbye. But anything else?
2: I'd just like to thank you very much indeed for giving me the opportunity to showcase or at least to, to spread the word about these syndromes. And, you know, even if one person listening to this later on helps to improve their lives, then that is just brilliant and I'm really thrilled about that. So I really, really would thank you very much indeed for giving me the chance to share the information to hopefully a huge audience.
1: Thank you and you are absolutely right. No matter how many people hear it, if it changes one person's life in in a positive way, it's worth everything.
2: Yes, yes it is.
1: Thank you, Lucinda, and goodbye.
2: Goodbye, Carol.